This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the move to Level 1 was heralded by the media here and overseas as a major achievement for New Zealanders. We had the welcome return of more freedom and normality in our daily lives, but not everyone on the air saw it that way. Lose the fear and the phobias. Get out there. Uh, Many New Zealanders fell into line because... They feared catching this disease. If the government says be scared, they're scared. If the government says dob people in, they dob people in. Also, what's in a name? We look at a David and Goliath tussle over the naming rights to mocking New Zealand towns under a non-too-glamorous title. Uh, Pooh Towns of New Zealand's a song about a new Kiwi town each week that we do. Also this week we look at new proposals to make Māori media fit for the digital future, including a controversial one that's alarming some Māori journalists and programme makers. But first, this week police canned its controversial armed response teams after plenty of critical coverage in the media. All of that against the backdrop of anger over George Floyd's killing in the US. But did we get a full picture this week of how and why our police bear arms? After a six-month trial, the police commissioner is ending the use of armed response teams. It's a move welcomed by Māori and Pacifica communities who were disproportionately impacted. Alice Wilkins reports. That was Samantha Hayes on News Hub at 6 last Tuesday, after the news that those controversial police armed response team trials recently won't be back. Police had previously said they'd wait until a full evaluation of this initiative had been done and it was due to be completed by the end of the month. But the new police commissioner didn't want to wait for that. I was clear from the outset that it wouldn't just be an evaluation that would answer this question. Uh, We've listened uh, to what communities have said, hence this decision. And it's a strange sort of trial which ends after six months, then another two months go by before it all comes to an end based on the public response, with the full evaluation of it yet to see the light of day. Police Commissioner Andrew Costa also said the main reason for his decision this week was that the armed response teams didn't align with the style of policing New Zealanders expect. On TVNZ One News last Tuesday, reporter May Heron wrapped up her report like this. The debate over New Zealand's police being an armed force, over for now. But it turned out the debate over police and weapons was far from over. Top stories this morning. Opposition grows against any suggestion police should use non-lethal sponge bullets against violent offenders. The National Party is distancing itself from the controversial Strike Force Raptor proposal that floated last year. But it was the Christchurch mosque atrocity which prompted police to start the armed response team trial in the first place. Brent and Tarrant had been arrested at gunpoint by officers who were armed because they happened to be returning from their firearms training. But another shocking story has changed the backdrop recently, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the violent confrontations with heavily armed police that followed across the US. And when thousands of people marched here the weekend before last, many were actually protesting about arming our police, as TVNZ1 News pointed out that day. The Twitter hashtag ArmsDownNZ trending in New Zealand. An organiser telling One News the online campaign is about stopping any move here towards American-style militarised policing. It was set up last year following the police armed response team trial. Police are now evaluating that trial, but it's been criticised as flawed. It has indeed, but not always accurately, as Melissa Stokes went on to report. 
And Green MP Golrez Gadaman has moved to correct a misleading tweet she made in response to George Floyd's death. She tweeted, Our police armed trial killed only Māori and Pacifica victims, but the police say no shots were fired during the six-month trial of armed response teams. A spokesperson for the Green Party told One News, Ms Gadaman made the error when shortening a longer Facebook post. She's since clarified her tweet, saying she was referring to police shootings during the trial period, not by the particular trial officers. And that's a pretty important distinction. And the fact that a clumsily worded social media message from the Greens Justice spokesperson featured in that same 6pm bulletin shows just how sensitive the issue of the armed response teams had become. The Police Association complained subsequently that to use the death of George Floyd to make claims about New Zealand police discrimination was offensive to officers who work in some of the most difficult, violent and fractured communities in our country. And the next day, reporters asked Police Minister Stuart Nash about racism in our police force like this. I think there is unconscious bias, and the previous police commissioner himself did acknowledge this, but I don't think there is. My personal view, from what I have seen, is there is, I do not believe there is institutional racism. And later on Monday, Associate Professor of Law at the Auckland University of Technology, Kylie Quince, told RNZ's Checkpoint that the US was a different place and a different history, and she said, I wouldn't overplay any parallels with the US. But on that question of racism in our police force, or unconscious bias if you like, she said this. Look, I think we can refute any claims of there not being uh, racism in the New Zealand police with their own data. Now, rates of arrest, imprisonment and instances of people harmed by police are all disproportionately high for Māori and Pacific people, and that's not disputed. And on Three's Māori current affairs show The Hui last weekend, the police minister was grilled about the difference between racism and unconscious bias and whether there really was an important difference. The same day in the Sunday Star Times, Green co-leader Marama Davidson said tensions had escalated in the areas covered by the police armed response teams during that trial. And she added that grief over George Floyd in the US here should now be channelled into opposing arms for our police. And on TBNZ's Q&A show the next day, New Zealand First MP Shane Jones backed the police, but pointed to the infamous Operation 8 raids on Tuhoi back in 2008 as a significant balls-up, as he put it, that's eroded trust in police nationwide, especially among Māori. But the controversial trial of the armed response teams is a more specific issue and we haven't always had many specifics about it in media reports. The trials were launched last year in counties Manukau, Waikato and Canterbury and all wrapped up six months later, last April. And they were then supposed to be evaluated by a special data analysis team with the report due later this month. But the media haven't waited for that to outline those flaws that TBNZ News referred to earlier. On June the 5th, for example, they led morning report like this. And to our top local story this morning, police on armed response teams failed to record their call-outs properly on almost every occasion during the trial's first two months. Officers were expected to record each call-out, but after the first two months, data from five out of every six call-outs was missing. In late May, RNZ's checkpoint revealed rushed decision-making and inadequate consultation, especially with Māori, and those are serious flaws in the light of the police's treaty obligations. And three days later, the News Hub Nation show on three revealed that the ARTs actually did mainly routine stuff like traffic stops, bail checks and attending accidents. Figures obtained by News Hub Nation show for the first three months they were busy doing the work 
of normal police. One of the concerns when these teams were introduced was that they would uh, be an introduction of armed units into routine policing by stealth. And looking at the data that's emerged, they, those fears seem to be realised. That was the voice of Tim McKinnell, former South Auckland police detective turned investigator and campaigner. And in a piece for the online Māori current affairs website Etangata, headlined Arms and Race, he called the armed response team trials opportunism and an egregious example of policing by decree rather than consent. And he said we should all pay attention to what's happening in the US and ensure we don't go down the same path. Last weekend, Tim McKinnell was a guest on The Nation, saying that the police trials were fundamentally flawed, and his fellow panellist and ART opponent, Kylie Quince, said they were dead in the water anyway. The new police commissioner seems to be pretty firm on um, saying that this, this doesn't look like it's going to be necessary, really. Um, so we've got some political support, police support, and, and quite a clear message from the community. And two days later, Kylie Quince was proved right. The Greens' Golras Garaman tweeted, We won, and communities are safer as a result, she said. But on The Nation last weekend, Tova O'Brien asked Tim McKinnell this. Māori wardens in South Auckland have said that some elderly actually feel safer with armed police. Uh, so how do you balance that with the risks? Well, I, th I think you need to look at the evidence the police have indicated that they're going to conduct surveys. Let's have a look and see what they say. Um, I think there'll be a differentiation between different communities who feel safer with armed police and who doesn't. But, you know, it, there is no doubt uh, in terms of the evidence that Māori and Pacifica communities are over-policed in this country. The president of the police association, Chris Carhill, subsequently told Stuff that the Green Party MPs had ignored the proliferation of illegal weapons in homes, in vehicles, in robberies and in gang warfare. Not only were firearms attacks on police officers at an all-time high, he said, in the past three years there were eight fatal shootings in counties Manukau alone, and that's one of the communities where the Green MPs had claimed the armed response teams would have had a negative effect. On Morning Report on Wednesday, Kim Hill put that to Auckland councillor for the Monaco Ward, FSO Collins, like this. Doesn't it come down to something as simple as this? Bad people have guns sometimes and we want a police force to be able to deal with them promptly. And those bad people aren't all in South Auckland? No, nobody's saying they are. But if you've got armed response teams, they can be professionally trained to deal with bad people with guns wherever they are. Well, the armed response teams were, were issued, were released, and they were exemplified here in South Auckland. So there's already a poor message there. Now, alarm about the prospect of routinely armed officers patrolling areas deemed to be highest risk is understandable, especially for Māori and Pacifica people in those areas, statistically far more likely to encounter those armed officers. On Wednesday, preliminary data released by the police revealed that Māori made up more than 50% of arrests and uses of force by the armed response teams during the trial. But in mid-May, RNZ obtained some interesting figures under the Official Information Act. The last two years had the highest rates of gun crime and deaths involving firearms for nearly 10 years. But despite that rise, there hasn't been a corresponding increase in officers taking out or using their guns. That story was the work of police reporter Ben Strang, who discovered that an increase in firearms offences had not apparently led to an increase in police presenting firearms themselves. In the face of increased firearms use, police data shows officers aren't doing the same. Now those who fear that armed police teams routinely on the roads wouldn't make our communities any safer may well be right. But facts like that were missing from condemnations of the armed response team trials in the media, made at a time when fears and anger about it were heightened because of what was in the news from the US.
Chester Borrows is a former policeman who, as a young officer, won a medal for confronting an armed murderer. Later, he became an Associate Minister of Justice in the National-led government. He was also the chair of Te Uepu Hapai e Te Ora, the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group, which was tasked last year with helping reform New Zealand's criminal justice system. Did he think that strong opposition to the armed response teams, expressed in the media lately, played a role in the decision to scrap them? I think it's probably prompted the early decision. I'm not sure whether it would have affected the decision had more time been given to it. You know, what Media Profile does is it animates others, and he would have had some fairly clear responses from those people around the country, uh, whether it be members of the public, activists, journalists, but also members of parliament and cabinet as to their responses. And so that may have affected his timing. Chris Carhill, the um, Police Association representative, he's been saying comparisons with the US uh, being made in the media are unfair, even insulting to our police officers, you know, and our cops have completely different oversight. They're one unitary force, unlike the US, where there's just this whole range of different forces and our police officers, you know, can't be compared necessarily with what's going on in the US. Members of the public and um, people like myself being interested observers could see that it's almost on a continuum. If you start off with ARTs, you're going to end up in the same place unless you're careful. So the point you make about um, you know one force as opposed to the United States, which has got about 3,000 different police forces in it, is quite right. But that if the public loses confidence, then the ability for the police to be able to do their job is greatly constrained. Very recently, you know, the former... President of the Police Association, now MP for Oharu in the government, said that the Police Association's stance was they were all for police carrying firearms all the time. What about, though, the increased encounters with firearms in recent years and yet are police actually drawing weapons less often, which is an interesting point, hardly mentioned? Do you think the media's failed to paint an accurate picture of the environment within which the decision to deploy these armed response team trials in the first place was made? I think there's been quite a definite skew in reporting around the ARTs. We've had a whole lot of comment of those who are uh, against that's had its effect. There's, there, there's stuff there that needs more investigation, and, and it's quite a complex issue. And there is a community understanding around the greater threats that exist these days, and methamphetamine is the obvious one, and a growth in family violence is another, and those two are quite well interlinked. But methamphetamine and firearms go together. So I think New Zealanders understand that the threats are greater against the police and against each other than they've been before, and we need to be able to combat that. Nobody's saying that the police shouldn't be armed, but they don't want to see a country where police are walking around with firearms on their hips in full view all the time as a matter of course. If the firearms are there and available for use, people stop talking and start using, and we know that the target of that shooting first would largely be Marian Pacific people. Do you think, by and large, this past week, while this issue has been so elevated in our media, that it's it's been a balanced treatment? No, I don't think it has been balanced, and uh, that hasn't bothered me too much because it's been unfavourably balanced in favour of my argument, and that's the way most of us view media reporting. We haven't heard a lot of voice about those who are in favour of ARTs. Unfortunately, as soon as some air is given to that side of the argument, the nut bars would come out, and, and start using all the rhetoric, not applying data and logic to their argument, 
and the voices of, of reason, even though they have a different point of view like Chris Carter, will be drowned out. Uh, really intense scrutiny on this. Is, is it actually a good thing in the end that the police choices and options on this have been aired and the guy at the top of the force has had to come out and answer those questions? We live in a country where everyone has a strong desire to know. Uh, good on Andy Costa for coming out and, and making that plain. Whether he was forced into a position or really, whether he would have done it, I like to think he probably would have been pretty open about it in any event because that's the way he seems to have maintained his first month or so in office. You know, it doesn't. it's not going to take away the fears that the targets and the recipients of uh, rubber bullets or sponge bullets or whatever they are are going to be the same people. Uh, it may not be lethal force, but it's still going to be directed at the same people and the injuries are going to be the same. That was Chester Burrows, a former policeman and a former Associate Minister of Justice and Chair of the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group, Te Uepu Hapai Ite Ora. On Thursday, Tipuni Kokiri, the Ministry for Māori Development, released Tao Papaho Māori He Araho, the Māori Media Sector Options Report, and that's a long-awaited and long-overdue official review of Māori media. And it's the latest step in a process which began way back in October 2018, when the government instructed Tipuni Kokiri to review publicly funded Māori broadcasting. The review covers Te Mangai Pāho, the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency, Māori Television and Te Whakaruruho, or Nareo Erirangi Māori, which represents 20 iwi radio stations around the country. Now back then, the minister, Nanaia Mahuta, said the aim was to make them future-proofed and fit for purpose in the digital age, employing the standard future-focused phrases for rejigging the media these days. And on Wednesday, the minister told Radio Wātea this. Obviously we're talking about greater collaboration, we're talking about equity in terms of funding uh, for Māori programming content. We're thinking about how we can deliver local news that is local rather than than being led by mainstream news. We're talking about uh, the way in which we can have a secure training pipeline uh, into the media broadcasting sector because often the starting point is with iwi radio. And while that sounded uncontroversial, she did warn that the review would rub some in the sector up the wrong way when it came out on Thursday. But in fact, it had already done that before it came out. In mid-May, Heniahi Melbourne, the chair of the Māori Screen Workers Guild, Na Ahu Fakari, told Radio Wātea a discussion document from Tipuni Kokiri was a recipe for mediocrity after two years of development. They make policies that usually don't work. And that's what I'm looking at on the paper. It's saying, you know, we are going to have a national radio station. Hello, it's never worked for us before. And we're going to change MTS. Yeah, how about talking to us first about what changes are needed to make the best product possible, not for it to be the most manageable from Wellington. But there has been plenty of time for consultation over the past two years leading up to the new report. The first report, outlining the current state of Māori media, was given to the Minister in March 2019 and then made public in May 2019. It identified numerous siloed media outlets, each doing their own thing for their own small audience share, while money invested was, it said, not being maximised. And at that point, a five-person panel was appointed to provide high-level options for the future. Now, those were supposed to be made public by March this year, but only emerged in the report this week. 
Among other things, the report suggests a centre for media excellence to develop staff, appointing joint members to the boards of the Māori Television Service and Te Mangai Pāho, and a new national radio station broadcasting in Te Reo. But controversially, it says that a number of Māori services now funded by Tamangai Pāho are not sustainable, and it suggests instead a single Māori news service to be located within Māori television. The idea didn't go down well, for example, with TV producer Annabelle Lee Mather, producer of the weekly current affairs show The Hui. She pointed out that the government has recently talked a lot about the importance of the plurality in news media and spent millions in emergency assistance so far to keep them in business but a one-stop shop for Māori news is not a new idea. Te Mangai Pāho's chief executive Larry Pā floated a one-stop shop even before the announcement of the Māori Media Review back in 2018. Opponents of the idea actually have an ally in government though, one right at the side of Minister Nanaia Mahuta, Associate Māori Development Minister Willie Jackson. Back then, the former boss of Radio Wātea and the former chair of Te Whakaruruho said that Te Mangai Pāho needed to be reined in. And he told Radio Waitea this. I'm disappointed with, the, with all the talks about rationalising the, the news. Uh, I'm on record of saying, hang on, how come Pākehā got all the uh, news bulletins and Māori always have to rationalise that? I stand by that, you know. And Willie Jackson could be having some interesting conversations with his government colleagues about all that in the days ahead. Public engagement on the review options kicks off next week with a series of public hui and public submissions are due by the 26th of June. You can find details of the Māori Media Sector Options Report, Te Ao Pāpaho Māori He Araho, and read more about it in the online version of the story that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app. I just want to start by saying this is not a political statement, but I just wanted to say to New Zealand, well done, everybody, um, and especially Jacinda. Um, sorry, a bit emotional, but fantastic. Um, oh, gosh, and he is gone as well. That was Clint, the first talkback caller on News Talk ZB after the Level 1 announcement last Monday. Now, in fact, Clint was still on the line there. He was just struggling a bit for words. Why so emotional, mate? Well, it's been so hard the last, you know, few months in, in life, getting back to normal. Just All a right. big well done to New Zealand and to Jacinda and her team. And caller Clint was not the only one praising the Prime Minister for her role in crushing COVID-19. So far, as News Talk ZB's Barry Soper told the host Andrew Dickens the day after. Well, of course, the world is in awe and you've got to say, uh, of mainly uh, Jacinda Ardern. Um, you know, they love the idea that she said that she had done a little dance on Sunday uh, around her living room and her daughter was uh, highly amused. And there was plenty more praise from the global media, as Barry Soper told the host Andrew Dickens. But in an online opinion piece the same day, for ZB and sister publication The New Zealand Herald, Barry Soper said, We'll never know how bad things could or would have got if the government hadn't gone so hard and early. Indeed, we'll never know how bad things would have got if people had listened to Barry Soper back on the 13th of March, two weeks before full lockdown. I think we shouldn't be too paranoid about this. Uh, we should do maybe what Britain is uh, doing, is expecting the inevitable, that people will get it, a bit like the flu, mm. and uh, then cope with it that way, build up some immunity in the community. 
And a month later, in the middle of lockdown level four, Barry Soper said the Prime Minister and the government went too far and there was no need to strangle the economy the way they did. As we moved back to level one last Monday, Barry Soper said in that online opinion piece, we can argue whether the government should have gone harder and earlier, like enforcing quarantine at the borders from the time we went into lockdown rather than two weeks after it. Yet back on the 13th of March, the same Barry Soper claimed he was aghast when the Prime Minister announced everyone arriving in the country had to self-isolate for a fortnight. And if it's not right, we'll rue the day because Mm. uh, the economy will most certainly suffer uh, the most significantly than they've ever suffered. And back then, Barry Soper was still saying it was fine for Air New Zealand to keep flying, echoing his colleague Kerry McIver. Coronavirus does not concern me any more than any other flu does. You know, if you catch the flu, any type of strain, it can be nasty. I would happily travel to London tomorrow. Well, now that we're at level one, the game has changed. But after reading through all that international media praise for the government here last Tuesday, Barry Soper gave his own take on the consequences. Uh, Many New Zealanders fell into line because they feared, they feared catching this disease. We were told from the beginning that everyone had, treat everybody as though they've got COVID-19 and I think we were in an element of fear. But the notion of all of us paralysed by a phantom fear of the just-crushed COVID-19 had clearly achieved community transmission among ZB broadcasters, including Barry Soper's partner Heather Duplessy-Allen, the same day. If the government says be scared, they're scared. If the government says dob people in, they dob people in. If the government says tens of thousands of people were going to die, well, they're unquestionable. Well, obviously, that was going to happen. It seems ridiculous, but those people who've given up their critical thinking, they need the Prime Minister tell, to tell them to come out. They need to be told it's safe. But listeners who delegated their critical thinking to News Talk ZB or Heather Duplessy Allen would not know what to think or what to fear. Back on April the 3rd, for example, she said stridently that our Prime Minister should sack the Health Minister, David Clark for breaching the lockdown on his bike. But three days later, she said on air that the Prime Minister shouldn't do that because it would have done more harm than good. And both completely contradictory takes appeared online on ZB's website and that of the New Zealand Herald as well. Last Tuesday morning, it was Kate Hawkesby's turn to tell ZB listeners and the Herald's online audience that New Zealanders are governed by fear. Lose the fear and the phobias. Get out there. Get back to normal. We need government to be government, not to be pretend epidemiologists. And if it's pretend epidemiologists you're looking for, well, nowhere were they thicker on the ground and on the air than on Newstalk ZB during the COVID-19 crisis. Back on the 20th of May, Kate Hawkesby said, we've been so browbeaten by rules, compliance and instruction that we literally can't think for ourselves anymore. And then she went on to argue for scrapping contact tracing in businesses to make shopping a bit easier. Yet back in April, when a woman burst Kate Hawkesby's bubble buying bananas at a dairy one day, the horrified Ms Hawkesby said this on Newstalk ZB. We cannot let up. We're doing so well. We have to keep up the vigilance. The more we stay vigilant, the more likely we are to get out of this lockdown on time. And who doesn't want that? Well, presumably all those people who apparently resent being told what to do all the time by the government, so much so that we now lack the capacity to think for ourselves. ZB hosts, though, including Kate Hawkesby, have displayed plenty of original thought throughout the COVID-19 crisis, changing their sincerely held views on key issues as frequently as they'd like.
For sports fans and sports bosses, a major blessing of moving to Level 1 this week is the return of live sport with fans in the stands. And all this was pretty big for NZME's main man at the mic for sport, Martin Devlin. On his News Talk ZB show last Sunday, he looked forward to this Sunday like this. Next Sunday, we will be reviewing our first live rugby game in this country, the first game of live professional sport in this country, the first game of rugby anywhere in the world since. It all went turtle on us the weekend of March the 13th to the 14th. And Martin Devlin recognised that the return of top rugby was the result of a huge effort by all New Zealanders. Pat yourselves on the back, New Zealand. It's quite amazing, isn't it? If you cast your mind back and think, wow, really? I mean, look at the rest of the world. How much live professional sport is going to be played in the rest of the world? Well, very little and even less of it with bums on seats in situ as we now have here. Here in New Zealand, what, 15 days in a row it was yesterday? We've done pretty well, haven't we? We have indeed. Though when the lockdown rules pulled the rug out from under live sport in mid-March, Martin Devlin wasn't exactly getting in behind what the government decided. The whole country's not going to come together in a big kumbaya hug fest saying we're all on this together. It's not going to happen. So instead of just throwing this at us and saying this is the cure-all, we all know that it's not practically workable. And one week later, the call was for self-isolation at level three, and he wasn't a fan of that either. This whole thing is just bat shite crazy. It is absolutely stark raving bonkers. It is cuckoo la la is what it is. And at that point, Martin Devlin was even telling listeners and callers this was no pandemic. Now you've got to listen to those people. I don't believe it's a pandemic. A pandemic killed almost 100 million people at the end of the First World War. That's a pandemic. Well, that was then. Safe to say that he knows COVID-19 is a pandemic now. So as excited as I am, I also do realise it's not the be-all and end-all. More like another part of the equation that piece by piece is slowly returning us to what we once considered normal. But what's clearly normal at News Talk ZB is changing your mind about life and death matters, but keeping calm and carrying on on the air as if you never contradicted yourself. Back in March, Martin Devlin was also unhappy about the media's role in all this. The way our media works these days is that the Prime Minister says something and it's just, oh, instant news, instant news, instant news, instant news. There's a, to me, this is way out of balance. It's like a, the washing machine where all of a sudden the load's the wrong way. It just doesn't feel to me the spin cycle is spinning as the manufacturer said that it would. It just feels, a, you know. And the lurches of an unevenly loaded washing machine whirling around from one side to the other seems a perfect metaphor for much of the News Talk ZB hosts COVID commentaries during the journey from lockdown back down to level one this past week. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, New Zealand's seen some bitter media feuds playing out in recent times, many of them heavily reported by some of the journalists involved. But Hayden Donnell now reports on one that's slipped under the radar a little. Most of New Zealand's recent media battles have played out in public. NZME and Stuff's on-again, off-again efforts to merge ended in a storm of recriminations, snarky columns and legal action last month. RNZ annoyed most commercial media companies in the country in March with an ad campaign announcing you don't have to pay for premium content. Many newsrooms denounced that as a publicly funded attack on their efforts to create a sustainable business model. All the while, another media dispute has been bubbling in the background, unnoticed but increasingly tense. The quarrel is between the radio station The Rock 
and the popular comedy Facebook page Shit Towns of New Zealand. The makers of Shit Towns are annoyed at the radio station over its regular segment Poo Towns of NZ, which they say bears too much similarity to their brand. The Rock has defended its segment, saying the name isn't confusing because Poo Town's content is so different. The Facebook page produces satirical, often deeply insulting reviews of New Zealand destinations from Auckland to Cromwell. Poo Towns is a weekly song featuring lyrics suggested by rock listeners and sung by a station producer. Here's an example. Poo Towns of New Zealand and Poo Towns of Mosgiel this week. Enjoy. Time for a hoedown. Crofter's Arms Hotel's the name of a pub Just that its nickname is The Flying Jug Home of three things, yes, there's bogans and beers and punch-ups Six fish and chip shops but no Mickey D's High school on Green Street is called Tyeri Unless you're a boomer who's ringing you so... The Rock's excuses don't wash with shit towns creators and the dispute over their almost shared name is heating up. This is the Facebook page's co-founder, who goes by the pseudonym Jeff Rissell. Kia ora, Jeff, and welcome to Media Watch. Thank you for having me on. Can you tell us a little bit of the origin story of Shit Towns of New Zealand? Basically, Shit Towns of New Zealand was just sort of a joke between a couple of mates. Um, we'd travel around and write up a review, and then we'd send us different people, and eventually ended up on Facebook, and that's how the page got started. That sounds like it's quite a casual thing, but it's actually developed a quite substantial fan base. How many fans do you have now on Facebook? Um, we have 150,000 in New Zealand and 200,000 in Australia. Okay, and those are separate Facebook pages? Yeah, separate entities, yeah. So when did you first hear about the rock segment, Shit Towns of New Zealand? Um, it was around the time we started getting a lot of media coverage. Um, the Herald did a bit on us getting some death threats about some of the reviews we'd done. I think maybe it was a few weeks, maybe a month after that, um, someone showed us that they'd done a segment called Shit Towns of New Zealand on the radio. Uh, we put up a post saying we didn't think that was cool, and then we didn't really hear anything more. But then like, over the last six months or so, it's become clear that they've been doing the same segment over and over again by calling it Poe Towns of New Zealand. Was that your only response at the time, just to put up your own Facebook post? You didn't actually contact The Rock or anything like that? No, because well, at the time it was just a really silly thing we were doing and we didn't realise that it would keep going and have a, the sort of life that it's had. We didn't imagine that they'd keep going with it as well. Like it's, It didn't seem like an idea that had the legs. But it has. It's been several years. So, yeah, your, your business actually got a little bit more serious, right? So you have two or three books out now. Yeah, uh, three books, and we're working on a fourth. It's, it's become a bit of a thing, which is it was unexpected. I guess if we'd known it was going to go this route, we would have been a bit more proactive to begin with. You approached MediaWorks Legal Counsel recently just saying, hey, what gives, can you stop this segment? And what was the response? Um, basically, they just hit us with the lawyer talk and said that it wasn't the same, it was substantially different, and they weren't going to do anything about it. They didn't really respond to the points we raised about it initially being called shit towns. Or There was even instances where they've reported on some of our stuff on the Rock website, and they've gone out of their way to point out that it's not associated with poo towns that they do on the rock. So they've already admitted that there's a possibility for confusion there. But the lawyer said there's no prospect of confusion. So you don't accept the argument that poo towns of New Zealand is substantially different to shit towns of New Zealand. Well, I, I, I would argue that what they're doing is substantially different, but the name isn't different. It's, um, if they change the name, we wouldn't have a problem with it. 
It just it feels like they're trying to draft off our success and use that for a segment which is not entirely related. To, to an outside observer, it does seem uh, a little bit nonsensical that someone could say that the name Poo Towns of New Zealand doesn't bear substantial similarity to the name Shit Towns of New Zealand. Yeah, I, I think it's not on. They've obviously um, cottoned on to our concept and some of the humour that we have, and um, they're just trying to pick up on our audience. And we don't really have any desire to be associated with The Rock and to be associated with an inferior product. Do you get their argument, though, that, you know, there's not that much of a chance of their product being associated with yours because theirs is a song and yours is a Facebook post? Well, the fact that we, that we routinely get messages every week from people who think that we're responsible for those songs would let me believe that they, they, um, they're, they're wrong. The names are too similar. And the, the part of part of this exchange, though, was that you said that you had trademarked the name Shit Towns of New Zealand, and that uh, doesn't appear to be the case. So you don't no. have a trademark. No, we don't. And quite frankly, we couldn't afford to follow it up legally anyway. Like it's the quagmire that we couldn't get involved in. Um, but that was back when we were starting out, and we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, we didn't anticipate it becoming such a big phenomenon. What would you like to see? Like, what would you want them to do? Um, if they just change the name, it'd be great. I just think it's pretty poor form when you've got one of the most popular radio stations in New Zealand basically ripping ideas off people on the internet. So no legal action from you, though you can't really afford that, but you would like to register your disappointment with MediaWorks and ask them again to change the name from Pooh Towns. That's it, yeah. Okay, well, we'll see where this goes. Thank you so much for joining me. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on. That was Jeff Rissol of the Facebook page Shit Towns of New Zealand. Now, we did get in touch with MediaWorks, which owns The Rock, to ask whether the station would consider changing the name of Pooh Towns of NZ in light of Russell's complaints. After a day, they got back to us with a written statement. The Rock has been running its Pooh Towns segment for almost three years now, and we believe this can continue to coexist with the Shit Towns of New Zealand Facebook page and books. However, the station had taken an extra step to resolve the dispute. It added... To further eliminate any possible confusion, The Rock has already taken the step to change the name of its segment and no longer uses the words of NZ. Russell says that name change is definitely an improvement. We will keep you abreast of any further developments. Hayden Donnell there on a David and Goliath struggle over the rights and wrongs of the naming rights to mocking the nation's towns on Facebook and on the radio. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but Hayden will be back with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, chatting to Karen Hay on Lately. And then we'll be back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.